0: Hi everyone. I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Alan Geick, the author of Glen Fiddich Inn, a novel that is in part about the sinking of the RMS Lusitania. This seems to be a year of anniversaries for New Books in Historical Fiction. We talked about the civil rights movement days before the 50th anniversary of the march from Selma to Montgomery, and posted a conversation about the Civil War on the 150th anniversary of Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Now, as I begin this interview, we are hours away from the centennial of the Lusitania tragedy. But Alan Geick's novel opens sometime after that fateful voyage. January twentieth, 1919, The Warfield Hotel, New York, New York. The New Jersey shoreline poked through the late morning mist over the Hudson River, revealing a line of vessels tethered to their piers. Some ships destined, William Morrison guessed, for a Europe still gasping from the devastating war that had just ended with only a faint whimper. He snapped open the oil-splattered leather case resting on the windowsill, lifted out the binoculars and quickly appraised them. Their once-glossy black finish was now blemished with bald spots, exposing a dull bronze underbody. William recalled spying on the frenzied gamblers in the stands at Fenway Park, laying World Series bets with one of Joe Finnerty's guys. Yes, that was the last time he handled the binoculars he had bought Byron for his birthday. He had borrowed them off his brother-in-law's neck that day. Was it just four years ago? Damn things look like they've had a century of wear. William twirled the focus ring on each lens, sharpening his view of the stevedores on the distant ships, grappling with cargo and luggage, ignoring the frigid harbor wind. They moved with the same slow steadiness as did the dock workers on Pier 54 down the street below his hotel window. Joe Finnerty, that son of a bitch, was right, William now told himself. When this war ends, Joe had said so many times, the United States will be the center of the universe, not the goddamn Brits anymore. William slipped the binoculars back into the case and jiggled the window, loosening a thin overlay of pale green paint bonding it to the wooden frame. He nudged the window up, leaned out, resting his palms on the concrete ledge, and breathed in the chilled January air. And now, please join me in welcoming Alan Geick. Hi, Alan. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today.
1: Thanks so much, Carolyn, for having me on. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on your show.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, as usual, I'll start by asking how you became a novelist. You were a radio host for a long time, and you have a degree from the London School of Economics and an interest in banks and things like that. Uh, tell us about that earlier part of your career. Well,
1: I just uh, I lived in Los Angeles, and someone uh, asked me to do a radio show for a couple of weeks about afro Cuban music of which i 'm uh, a fan of and I wound up uh, being there for twenty five years and i wound, and I started to write uh, liner notes for musicians and then after that, I started to write about. The uh, bank bailouts and things. I don't want to put your audience to sleep this early in the show, but it was uh, bank uh, bank related articles. And about 2004, I started to write uh, for HBO a treatment about Carlo Ponzi, who was the uh, for which the Ponzi scheme received its name. He lived in Boston and. 1920. And as I did the research, I found that era to be extremely interesting. And so I started to just write this novel, it started to come out in bits and pieces.
0: That's interesting. So So that's how you made the transition. Once you started, how did you go about producing a finished novel?
1: Uh, with a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, frustration, work, etc. Over the years, it just kept coming back to me. Uh, I was stuck in the period of pre-war, pre-World War One, Boston. Uh, the characters and the uh, situation that was developing there uh, just fascinated me. Both on a uh, from my uh, educational background of how the economy was evolving and the war, the distant war in Europe, and some of the characters started to develop. Babe Ruth, who became the first sports icon, wound up in Boston the very month World War One started, and he became a metaphor in my story, along with some of the fictional characters for the evolvement of America at that time.
0: Oh, you've, yes, okay, so you've mentioned what drew you to the story, that the research you were doing on Carlo Ponzi, but, and that's certainly an element in Glenfiddich in um, where, the the, the novel sort of starts um, with the sinking of the Lusitania, and as I mentioned in the introduction, this is, in fact, today uh, when we're conducting the interview, although, not when it's going to air. Um, on this day is this the uh, centennial of the sinking. How did it's- that element of it actually come in to the story?
1: Well, it's it was one of the several historic signposts of the story, the Lusitania sinking. Actually, Carolyn, it's uh, such a coincidence. We're doing it right at this moment. Piece. It was almost 100 years to the very moment that the Lusitania sank. And before that, the war, the war was on for about a half a year, and people were watching in horror in America this distant war that was using technology that was um, – Uh, immensely destructive, including chemical warfare that was used by both sides. And when the Lusitania sank, it was a wake-up call to America that this war was getting very close. Uh, I forget the exact number, but uh, 1,200 people died on the Lusitania, and uh, a good number were Americans.
0: So um, the sinking is just one of the threads that we've together to form this story. Uh, which of the overlapping stories do you consider to be central?
1: One was the advent of radio, um, which uh, also one of the places it evolved in. One of the several places in America and throughout the world uh, at the same time was Tufts College in right outside of Boston, and it was an experiment. The the uh, wireless uh, Morse code had just been developed a few years before, and it was used on the Titanic. Uh, if there was no wireless Morse code, there would have been no Titanic stories. There would have been no Titanic movies. It would have just been one more ship that sank without a trace. But because of wireless Morse code, we had the drama and the awful stories of the survivors that are still being played out today, the next frontier was wireless audio transmissions. And they called it broadcasting because it sort of resembled a farmer throwing out seeds uh, to into the field. And the word radio quickly evolved. And people looked at it skeptically at the time because it, no one could quite get a business model for how do you pay for a station when everybody receives it, the signal for free. So it's funny because 70 years later, the same question came up with Internet and both were extremely successful as uh, communication devices. So I, the idea of radio, its advent and how it played out in the very early days was of great interest to me.
0: That's interesting. And of course, um, you know, you were a radio host and we are, although we're broadcasting over the internet, you know, we're sort of like the next generation of that um, here on this podcast. Um, I I do want to hear more about that. And I'd like you actually to tell us a little bit more about what you know from your experience as a radio host about it. But let's also talk about your characters because... um, the heart of the novel seems to, to be the extended Townsend uh, clan. There's Donald and his wife, Beatrice. There's uh, their twin children, Margaret and Byron, and then the children's spouses, William Morrison, who we met in the prologue, and Helen Townsend. And then William's family, who actually owns the Glenfiddichin of the title, are part of the, the story as well. But let's start with Margaret, um, because she is, in fact, involved with radio, and so is Helen Townsend.
1: Yes, one of the things on a personal level about radio that uh, I quickly understood as I was doing a program was how uh, part of people's lives radio was at the time, uh, became, and even today, uh, people listen to it in the shower, they listen to it, uh, boom, well, they did uh, for years, now it's changed, of course, everybody listens to everything on a cell phone, but nothing had I was amazed at how much a part of people 's lives I became, and other radio hosts and you on uh, websites because uh, it's it 's just a uh, an extraordinary medium. People walk around their homes and listen to it in cars and Margaret and Helen, the two uh, women characters in in the novel, both uh, understood immediately how important radio would become. And Margaret's family, uh, the the Townsends, owned a newspaper. And we always forget how important newspaper was at that time. There were thousands and thousands of newspapers throughout the country. And newspapers saw radio as uh, they understood or thought that it would replace them as the primary means of communication. So the family had a built-in antipathy to the idea of radio, and that was one of the conflicts throughout the story.
0: Um, Yes, uh, that's uh, Donald and Beatrice who are, are involved. Well, Donald particularly is involved in the newspaper. Tell us a little bit about what radio technology was like in 1915.
1: Well... They were the, the people at Tufts College, as the story begins, were very enthused about a new bulb that was just developed um, by a man named Lee DeForest, who was one of the early figures in radio. And they were hoping to transmit a signal that would go a few miles away from Tufts College. And they thought maybe they could even transmit music and this was the big experiment they were they were planning for the next month within 2 years the technology had uh, improved to the point of where they were hoping to have president wilson make a speech before his reelect his election campaign in 1916 and in fact that was the first year that the results election results were played on the radio in New York City, and they hoped that a few hundred people might be listening to it.
0: (laughs) And they were very excited about that possibility.
1: It's a thrill for them to hear election results that were being um, uh, given over the air by Lee Lee DeForest, and he was reading them from one of the newspaper um, teletypes.
0: So tell us a little bit about this bulb. I mean, I thought that was really fascinating. What does the bulb do? Why, why was it so important? Why was what? I'm sorry. The Karen. bulb. The, oh, the bulb. The, the bulb that was developed
1: was. Uh, it was a, after they had been this, the engineers had toyed with it and tinkered with it. They realized that the bulb could do three things. It could transmit, and it could receive and it could also the, the problem with audio at the time was that unlike the morse code which is breaking up a, a direct signal a very strong signal this signal had to start off low and then it was transmitted at a very high uh, let's call it frequency a high uh, a higher strength and then it had to fold down into someone's earphones or into their receiver which later became the radio So this one bulb was able to do all three functions. And this was the major breakthrough in what became radio after the war. And it it became immensely popular as soon as the war ended.
0: Sue, since we started with Margaret, um, tell us a little bit about her as a character. What is it that appeals to her about radio and what is she like as a person?
1: Margaret was an Earl we at the time right before World War I, America was emerging as a uh, developing nation is what we would call it today and there was a whole uh, uh, there was a whole group of people out there who were called intelligentsia and also the it was a period of, of great uh, independence for women uh, There was a lot of women involved and men, too, of course, involved in the suffrage movement, which also happened. uh, Women's right to vote throughout the country happened about 1920, although they were able to vote in the West, in many Western states. And Margaret pointed out in the uh, story that sophisticated Massachusetts and New York did not have the right for women to vote, but places like Wyoming and Colorado did. And she was a a woman of great uh, free spirit, as was her sidekick and sister-in-law, Helen. And they both saw the radio as the most extraordinary uh, evolvement in communication, something that would bring the whole world together a vision that was, as I mentioned before, not shared by the uh, more business-oriented people of the time. They were also both artists, which played a, a role in the story.
0: Um, okay. Uh, and tell us a bit about um, Margaret's brother. He's also a newspaper man, right?
1: Yes. Byron worked for his father and sort of, was a bit um, overshadowed by his father. He was a sports writer, which was immensely popular at the time, and baseball was the major sport at the time. And everybody in Boston was excited about this big, gangly, basically simpleton Called George Herman Ruth. They just called him babe coming to Boston. And although Byron had a safe uh, job with his father's newspaper, he really wanted to go to Europe. He saw the war in Europe as being as it was, as it became the um, most important event of that generation. And he was trying to get to Europe as a, as, as a war correspondent and, uh, he wound up going off to Mexico, which was, uh, with the uh, expeditionary force of General Pershing, trying to find Pancho Villa, which in a lot of ways was a prelude to World War I. Oh,
0: tell us a little bit about that, I and mean, how was how it a prelude to World War I? Um,
1: Margaret, particularly, as did the progressive elements in American society, saw the uh, militarization of uh, well, the, the expedition, as they called it, General Pershing, who wound up leading the expeditionary forces in Europe only about a year and a half later, they saw that as building the American uh, uh, wish or the, Ameri- the they got America aboard for a war mentality where none existed. It's not unlike what happened today in Vietnam and Iraq in many ways. Uh, the uh, government had to really program society for a war that they thought, some people thought would be inevitable. And the chase of Pancho Villa, which was uh, reminiscent of things that happened afterwards, they just chased him through the North Mexican mountains, never found him, and it was all a fiasco. But America did uh, become more war-minded. And Carolyn, uh, an interesting point was that America at the time, we forget, was filled with um, the big cities were basically German and Irish two, uh two groups that would never be uh, sympathetic to the British interests in the war. And once the war started, America really had to uh, evolve a propaganda machine. Actually, they called it the Committee for Political uh, for uh, Public Information but it it grinded out uh um pro-british uh uh propaganda as soon as the war began.
0: Yes, that was something that was very interesting to me too. I was surprised by that, frankly.
1: I was too when I first came upon it and uh, that was something that uh moved the story along in ways I didn't expect when I first began writing it. How important the propaganda tool was in World War I as it became in every foreign involvement we've had ever since. And it began right then and there.
0: And America delayed for a long time before entering that war.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, uh, it, it took about, uh, it, America was only in World War One for about 18 months, whereas the war went on for four extraordinarily destructive years and that's one of the reasons why it doesn't have the resonance in America that World War II had and of course it wasn't as photogenic if I may use that word as World War II. There was no Pearl Harbor, no D-Day, no atomic bomb. So in Europe, World War I is, uh, a much, is much more embedded in the uh, psyche of Europe uh, than it is here.
0: Yes, I think that's really true. I grew up in England, uh, in the oh, south yeah. of England, and it, when I was a child in school, you know, we wore poppies every year on um, on Veterans Day, and I mean, they called it Armistice Day there, but that's it, it was really a big, um, big um, celebration. Is not the right word? Memorial. Sure. <laughs> uh, in fact, they did this beautiful thing for the centennial with the poppies outside the Tower of London. I wished I could have seen those.
1: And they still do, actually, in Scotland, which was devastated by the war. They just uh, I don't know the number of Scottish towns and hamlets and villages that were just emptied out of men who went to the front in this. The most uh, futile um, charges against the German um, uh, weaponry uh, Scotland, I don't think, in some ways has ever uh, recovered. Uh, at least psychically
0: no it was a really terrible war I think um, I mean war is always terrible but that one particularly because it seemed to be so pointless um, It it is in many ways a really dreadful war so which makes it all the more surprising for, for Byron's family that he wants to go and be part of it um, they have a really hard time with this I think
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, the father saw him as the heir apparent to this newspaper, which was, it was a progressive newspaper, and uh, his father had a very uh, solid, very important place in British uh, society because of his, his his progressive views, and he just uh, was appalled that Byron was going to go off and uh, have any part of this war. But interestingly enough, as the war got closer, even they sort of uh, relented in in their views of of the war. They in some ways reluctantly bought into the propaganda later on or just had to, rather they had to endure the propaganda that was all around them, the pro-war propaganda.
0: So the people who go on the Lusitania are actually... Not members of of the Townsend family. They're members of William Morrison's family. And we should talk about him. But before we get to him, since he leads into a bunch of other people, um, tell us a little bit about the, the people who go on the Lusitania. What takes them there and um, what you want us to know about them, I think. The best well, way to put it. yeah.
1: William and his uh, sister Luella had been um, orphaned by their parents and grew up in uh, Glenford Inn, And uh, she was married to a man who was working in Scotland at a distillery for a big distillery. And she and her daughter uh, were going on the Lusitania to uh, reunite with the father. Uh, everyone thought that the war was so distant that traveling across the ocean would, would not really be a problem. Even though, as it turned out, of course, it was, and the very day the Lusitania set sail, the German embassy warned people on that ship that they would could be a target because there was um, munitions aboard or so they claimed. But Luella and Sarah took sail on the Lusitania, and I won't spoil the story to tell how that worked out.
0: Uh, no, don't do that. Um <laughs> There has been this uh, nonfiction book published very recently by Eric Larson on the Lusitania. Um, have you read it?
1: I haven't, but I certainly will. I, I, I think he's a, an extraordinarily uh, gifted uh, writer of narrative nonfiction. I, I read his story about Chicago at the World's Fair and the intertwining with a serial killer. I think it was called The Devil in the City of Lights. Right and it yeah. was brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and I'm looking forward to reading this one too
0: well, I haven't read it either, but I did hear him talking on NPR and um what was interesting was that he seemed i i'm apparently this is common knowledge in certain circumstances in some, certain circles, but it was news to me that apparently there is reason to suspect that the Lusitania was carrying munitions
1: absolutely and I I think they had done an expedition uh, under, underwater um, survey of it, and it, it, I think it's still up in the air as to whether it actually did or not. But a lot of the evidence indicates that there was ammunition below deck because at the time of the uh, sinking, there were two explosions heard, one from inside the ship and one from the torpedo hitting the side of the ship. Uh, which indicated to a lot of munitions experts that there was uh, uh, cargo of ammunition.
0: Which must have been pretty devastating. I guess the families didn't know at the time they were devastated anyway by the sinking. But if you think that another government has actually put your loved ones at risk, it's amazing really that they ended up on the same side in the war.
1: Absolutely. And the British and the French were, uh, I mean, this was a war, this was uh, the war war of all wars at the time. Uh, They did everything they could to get America in on their side for the next two years. Uh, uh, Their own propaganda uh, superseded the German propaganda because the British had cut the cables from Germany. And so the only pro- only war information came through the British and the French, and they worked it uh, incessantly uh, to get America in on their side
0: so um so William loses uh, or William sees his uh, sister and his niece go off on the Lusitania and um his family is also the owners of the Glenfiddich of the title uh, what What makes that the central image of the story for you why, why did How did the title come to be It's a great title by the way uh, thank you <laughs> uh, i i can 't really say except that it just
1: it felt right to me that something in Scotland which to me was uh the most uh, uh, devastated uh, uh, of all participants in some way, or at least I felt the, the uh, I empathized immediately with the Scottish foot soldier who was so patriotic and loyal and just went off to, uh, to this disastrous war. But uh, we mentioned in the story how the name in came to be, and it came through Isaac Morrison, who uh, was William's uh, uncle and the owner of Glenfiddich, and he uh, he named it, it. It was sort of a humorous. Uh, he was sort of a daft uh, inventor of always a, always a minute too late with his inventions. A lot having to do with electricity and how the new products that were coming out that were motor had motors in them. And Isaac uh, was definitely a, an eccentric character who gave name to Glenfiddich in.
0: And what is the? I mean, what, how does he know about Glenfiddich? I assume most people know what Glenfiddich is, right? It's a well-known. Yeah, it's, it's a well-known,
1: a, it's a well-known uh, uh, Scotch whiskey. It's also a town in Scotland, and he just picked that name out of really nowhere. And as I wrote in the story, in one part, uh, one of the cal- characters, Helen. Asked Agnes, uh, um, Isaac's wife, how did the name Glenfiddich Inn come about? And she pointed out that he just picked it out and wound up, anybody who went to to Scotland, he asked for uh, memorabilia from Glenfiddich Inn. And he wound up having a picture of a circus troupe on the steps of Glenfiddich Town Hall. And, uh, but... More central to the story is that this was the place that William felt really comfortable. This was the place that gave him, uh, that nurtured him in his childhood. And as eccentric as everything around him was, it was still a place of great adventure for him.
0: That's a perfect uh, lead in to the next (laughs) question. (laughs) Tell us about William. He's, uh, he's operating on a slightly different trajectory from the radio news-obsessed uh, uh, Townsend's.
1: Yes, William was a college graduate. He went to uh, Yale, and he, he found himself in a bank, working in a bank as a bank vice president. And he longed for more, but he was safe where he was. His wife, he watched Margaret and Helen Uh, It was a very adventurous time for people around him. But he himself was sort of, he had a uh, love-hate relationship with his boss, the young bank president, Joe Finity. And throughout the story, he was trying to to find out what that relationship was. And it ends, uh, of course, I won't mention how it ends, but Joe Finnerty was an amoral character, as uh, many examples throughout the story. And William was both um, drawn to it and also repelled by it. And that was his his major conflict in the story.
0: Um, Joe Finnerty is a great character, um, as schemers <laughs> always are. Did you have fun writing him?
1: Actually, Joe Finnity was the, uh, the most fun of all the
0: characters.
1: And he came out of a real-life character, actually. As oh, great. I was doing, Tell us re- about that. I will, indeed. Uh, as I was doing my research for the um, uh, Carlo Panzi story and looking through Boston at that era, the person who jumped out at me was Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family. He was also a young bank president. His father had the um, uh, distribution rights to Hague whiskey, which uh, Joe Kennedy continued throughout Prohibition, and hence he's always been known as a a bootlegger. He wasn't a bootlegger. He was selling very high-quality whiskey uh, during Prohibition, but he was a scammer and a schemer for his whole life and a a, a selling uh, scam stock frauds as we may. and so the Joe Finity character was a mirror of Joe Kennedy with a lot of his own character built into it.
0: So tell us a little bit about some of Joe Finity's schemes some, some of the ones in early in the book nothing that's going to spoil it for people. Uh,
1: yes, well Joe Finity is one of those characters that exists today as and always has throughout history a totally amoral character. His goal was uh, to make a deal happen. There was a part of him, and I am sort of grew up around that also, uh, Damon Runyon characters, who would rather make a dollar under the table than $10 above the table. There was just something that drew them to making quick deals, making deals that uh, lived on the edge of um, morality and legality, and uh, that's what uh, pushed Joe, Can- Joe Finity. even though he had a legitimate job as a bank president and could have made a very good living doing that. He had to live on the edge, not unlike Bernie Madoff and people like that uh, many generations later.
0: Yeah, you're right. It does seem to be a certain kind of personality type. People just, some people just thrive on the risk of it, I think.
1: Totally. And uh, the risk is more, worth more to them and more involving than whatever financial reward they can um, muster out of it.
0: So when we first meet Joe, he's got a mammoth cauldron, I guess you'd call it. Uh, where <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell us what he's doing with it. Well, actually, they built this monstrosity of a storage tank for molasses uh, in Boston right near the docks. And uh, Joe Finity, this is a, 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 a true uh, a true incident. They built it uh, with, and they were filling it with molasses uh, from Puerto Rico, uh, with the expectation of making it into alcohol. But as they saw prohibition coming, there was a huge movement. As for um, suffrage, there was also a temperance movement at that time. They were expecting to make a lot of money being able to convert the molasses to rum. And uh, they, ne- they built this storage tank without really giving it any kind of a stress test. And we, we come upon uh, William and some of the characters around the storage tank, uh, and they found a, a very uh, unique way to give it a stress test, which failed in the end, but I won't get into that either.
0: I'm trying to imagine how anyone thinks that they can bootleg, you know, an enormous, cult. what was it, 2,000 pounds or something? Oh, of no, it was, it was uh, many, many
1: thousands of gallons, the number escapes me, of, of molasses. But uh,
0: you can't really hide a thing like that, you know, I mean, if, if it all disappears into rum. You
1: would think... they, I don't know if they gave any thought of, to that, but in their own, uh, their own self uh uh, int- they i'm sure they believed that whatever came they would be able to deal with the legalities and make a lot of money out of it as they did with everything else everything was easy pickings at the time for people like joe Finnity because uh, society was not up to their uh, up to their schemes and i might say that's reflected even today with a lot of uh, in a lot of uh, industries
0: I suppose they could buy off the police, right? I mean it's yes. um so um one of Joe Finnerty's schemes involves Babe Ruth. And I don't know if you want to tell us about what the scheme is because that's fairly far into the book. But tell us about your Babe Ruth. How much of him is a real character and how much of is something that you developed or or changed on behalf of the story? Because I, I'm not the baseball fan in the house, so I, don't, I know about Babe Ruth because everybody knows about Babe Ruth, but I don't really know anything about him. So I was quite interested by the character that you portrayed. Well,
1: first, I grew up in the shadow,
0: literally, of Yankee Stadium, and I used to collect baseball
1: autographs. That was after Babe Ruth had died, but I grew up with the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the Babe Ruth story was ingrained from me, in me from the time I was eight. But the Babe Ruth that I portrayed was basically the one he he was, and he was a, became a metaphor for me, of America, from 1914 to 1918. He came to Boston out of a work home, in Baltimore. People later on thought he came out of an orphanage, but his parents were alive and well in Baltimore. They ran a they were German speaking. And they ran a uh, tavern, but he was incorrigible at the age of nine and he spent the next 10 years in a work home and he was a baseball uh, prodigy and he wound up on the Boston Red Sox at the age of 19, never knowing what a menu was never knowing what an automobile was, even how to check into a hotel room. He was big and basically, as described at the time, a simpleton who was a great copy for the sports writers like our fictional character, Byron. And as the story progresses, Babe Ruth becomes more and more in tune with uh, business interests and how things really work in the world of baseball fixes and uh, betting and things of that sort. Not to say women and drinking became his major pastimes. And uh, so a lot of, and Joe Finity saw Babe Ruth as someone to get next to. Uh, it evolved into a very particular kind of uh, uh, illegality, but it started off with he just knew that Babe Ruth being the, uh, the most important player in baseball was someone who he could probably manipulate into something. And it didn't matter what at the moment. To just get next to him was his his uh, his mission.
0: So when he's described as a simpleton, it really means that he's, he's ignorant of how things are done more than that he's not yes. intelligent. Well,
1: uh, there was... Uh, uh,
0: yes, we could say he was naive. There was a
1: hard. It was a harsher view of uh, Babe Ruth uh, among some people at the time. Who did, he would He was very. He was never. By the way, he was. He was huge for his size. He was one of the biggest players in baseball physically. But when he worked, when he was in the work home, he was never a bully, and he always um, protected the children uh, younger than him, and that continued throughout his career. Some people saw that as a sign of weakness. Of course, I wouldn't, and you, I'm sure, wouldn't either, but at the time, people like Joe Finnerty uh, just uh, thought that was, um, uh, I I can't think of the word right now, but um, it gave rise to uh, some negative
0: portrayals of Babe Ruth. I have a feeling Joe Finnerty probably saw most people as simpletons, don't you? Absolutely, uh, of course. Just, I mean, just, just victims for his, his uh, schemes. Uh, just as uh,
1: Bernie Madoff said uh, after he was arrested, he said, I wonder why it took these people so long to figure this out.
0: Yeah, there is a kind of arrogance there, which is yes. interesting.
1: Yes, and uh, no doubt, and uh, a hubris that usually accompanies it, that's always their downfall.
0: So let's go back to the the characters just a little bit before sure. we move on to something else. So, um, uh, Margaret and Helen seem to be almost mirror images of each other. They're they're very close friends. They have a lot in common. Um, the main they the main issue between them is is the what turns out to be the relationship with Helen and Byron caused by Byron's decision to go to Europe, which. Helen is obviously not happy about. Um, William and Byron, in contrast, do seem to be quite different characters. Um, what is it that each of them most wants out of life?
1: I think Byron mostly wants his father's approval on one level. He wants to prove to himself that he can uh, leave the, the uh, nest of his father's newspaper, and he is drawn, as so many people were, Ernest Hemingway, the list goes on and on, of people who were drawn to this uh, vicious war as war correspondents or just to be witness to this great event of their generation. William, on the other hand, was trying, was on a whole different level, trying to find his way through... Uh, corporate, uh, The corporate structure of his era and trying to, on one hand, please his boss, Joe Finity, uh, who was always uh, held in contempt by Margaret's family because they saw him as just the most brazen of uh, uh, opportunists. And as the amoral character he was. But that was maybe William's sense of adventure, that he was able to withstand his Margaret and his, her family's contempt for Finity and stay with Finity until it's resolved itself.
0: That's an interesting insight. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. That does make sense. So you've mentioned a couple of times that you did research for this book, that you were actually starting out to research something that wasn't a novel. Um but what kind of research did you do? Oh,
1: once I got into the story and I was drawn to radio, to Babe Ruth, to the extraordinary anti war movement that was taking place in America. I just I mean, online I was in Los Angeles and I ordered books from every uh, library branch in in Los Angeles at the time and it was very intensive research but I was fascinated by how radio evolved how Babe Ruth evolved how uh, the war just became a part of American culture, how it was shaped uh, by the propaganda machines uh, uh, in England and the United States um, and I, I the research went on until the very end uh, the, even the storage tank that you mentioned, there was a book that the name escapes me, but a, a very uh, written in very much uh, the style of Eric Lawson's book. It was just about the storage tank and how it came about and the end uh, of it, which I won't mention, which is also part of my story.
0: That's good to know. That somewhere out there is a book about the storage tank. Absolutely. It was just.
1: About, I was amazed when I found that, which leads me to believe there's a book about everything, and there's someone with a uh, advanced degree in every subject, including my own.
0: There you go. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your experience with publishing, uh, Glenn Fidichin.
1: Oh, uh, well, I never really looked at. Um, I I never saw the end game, and once I did, I realized I just wanted, I sent it out to agents and did that whole routine with very little uh, success. But as I got closer to finishing it, I wanted it out. I gave myself to the end of uh, 2014. I wanted it out as a Kindle version and then a paperback. And I just chose at the time Amazon because even though my friends uh, in the publishing business uh, just have such a contempt for it, I found it to be uh, the way to go. I wanted it out. I wanted readers for it. Um, Whether it's successful or not, I I have no control over. I just, uh, it's been an adventure for me because it's such a new, publicizing a a book as opposed to CDs, which I produced and were successful, Afro-Cuban music CDs. I had an understanding of how to do that because of my time in radio, but I didn't with um with this uh with this book. So it's been an adventure. I don't know if that answers your question exactly.
0: Yeah, it's fine. It's it's a general question. I'm curious yeah. as to pe- you know, different people's experiences with it. Which parts do you enjoy the most? Which what? Which parts of the experience do you enjoy the most? I enjoy right I have a lot of LinkedIn
1: contacts because of my um Articles about banks and bank fraud and how the banking system works uh, throughout the world. I've and I've send them uh, Kindle copies and their reactions. That's probably the most gratifying to read reviews of the uh, book. Um, and I'm I'm sort of interested in the it, it amazes me that people often pick out parts that weren't that important to me as being most important to them that's a new phenomena for me but i understand that's not uncommon
0: it's interesting so your author's note at the back of glentiddickin suggests that you're working on another project relating to your own family history is that also a novel
1: no actually i i grew up in a family that I could describe as a Damon Runyon family, there was many of them involved in uh, organized crime. I I was always around it, but I never quite became part of it. Uh, Obviously, I went to graduate school, and I always watched it from afar. And my sister, who's an attorney in Boston, and uh, some other family members said, that's That's the story you should be writing about these characters we grew up around. And so I'm beginning to do research into that and speaking to the few living members uh, who were around and interacted with those characters who I read about in uh, articles and books about uh, criminal activity in the 40s and 50s and 60s.
0: Are there newspaper records and so on of of the things they were doing?
1: Oh, absolutely. There's numerous references to all of them. And I grew up reading them, uh, but it was always distant to me, luckily, because I was never really uh, wanted to be part of it, as some uh, boys might have found that very exciting when they were younger. I was always more of an adventurer and a student, But I enjoyed being around them and hearing their stories. And um, uh, I laugh still when I tell the stories to people today.
0: That's great. Oh, we wish you all success. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today.
1: Oh, Carolyn, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie. And today I've been speaking with Alan Geich, the author of Glenfiddich Inn. You can find out more information about him and his book at www.glenfiddichinn.com. That's G-L-E-N-F-I-D-D-I-C-H-I-N-N as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at newbookshistfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview at blog.cpilessie.com. I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. If you'd like to know more about my novels, you can find that information under the Books tab. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at http colon slash slash newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.